Good to be with you again this morning and to open the Bible together. Now, if you've ever, let me ask you, if you ever thought that you had something all figured out, right, and then you found out you were completely wrong, right, I've heard it said this way, you had all your ducks in a row, found out you had the wrong ducks, right, maybe those ducks were geese or something. And one day, much of the world is going to find out that much of the world has been is in for a rude awakening that they've been wrong about a lot of things. Maybe had all the ducks in a row, but had the wrong ducks. You know, our world has a set of principles in our cultures, and, and especially in our culture as we know it, uh, that's kind of universally accepted that this is the way life works. It's the way that we think if you do this, things will go well for you. If you want to be successful, you do this. And, and there's a myriad of those things that we can name. But as we look at the Beatitudes, what we're learning is that Jesus comes along and His kingdom is very upside down from the world's way. He comes along with a whole different set of principles and says, that might be the way the world is, but this is the way the world should be. It's an upside down kingdom. And it's really right side up. The world's what's upside down. Sin has warped and changed and confused and confounded the world to the point that we just don't live and view life like we're supposed to. And so Jesus comes along, and when he starts talking about his kingdom and the way things work in his kingdom, it seems backwards. It seems upside down because it's life as it's supposed to be. And life as it is meant to be is life lived in Christ. Life as it is meant to be is life lived for Christ. And life as it is meant to be is life lived in the way and the teaching of Christ. But our world today, for example, is chiefly ruled by the powerful, the rich, and some by, sometimes by those who will step on others, who will push aside others, who will run over others to get to where they want to go. And the way to get ahead in our world many times is to look out for and to take up for yourself, to look out for number one. But we're going to see this morning, however, that the people Jesus says will ultimately inherit the earth are not the people that typically in our day are ruling the world. There is a great reversal that is coming. And Jesus says it's the meek that's going to inherit the earth. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. We'll start in verse 2 and we'll read through verse 5. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, we're in week three of a series on the Beatitudes, if you haven't been with us. So, quick recap. The Beatitudes are characteristics of the people of the kingdom. It's the attitudes of the heart, of the heart that's yielded to Jesus as king. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is life as it's supposed to be lived in the kingdom, and the Beatitudes are the introduction to that sermon, or sort of the characteristics of what our lives are supposed to look like. And you see the word blessed over and over and over again in these eight Beatitudes, and that word means favored. It means fortunate. It can mean happy. It's basically a state of well-being with God. It basically says, it is well with my soul, as the, old, as the old song says, and it's well with my soul because God says it's well with my soul. And Jesus, we talked about the last two weeks, the poor in spirit. That Jesus says the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It's those who's, who mourn that will be comforted. And the poor in spirit are the people that sense and recognize and acknowledge their spiritual poverty and bankruptcy before God, that they have no resources within themselves to live life as God has designed, and that they are totally dependent upon God and His grace. Right? Salvation begins there. 
Uh, that, that is 101, right? It's the poor in spirit and only the poor in spirit that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then it's those who mourn, he says, that will be comforted. That's primarily those who mourn over the brokenness and sin in the world and in their life and in the lives of others. There's a seriousness we talked about last week to the Christian life and a godly sorrow when we deal with sin. And this morning, the beatitude is a natural outgrowth of those first two. It makes sense that the poor in spirit, that those who mourn sin, would also be the meek because all three of the first three beatitudes deal with humility. Right? I mean, it's, it's the humble who will be poor in spirit. It's the humble who will realize their brokenness and fallenness before God and admit their sin. And it's the humble who will ultimately be meek. Meekness is an expression of humility in a lot of ways. So we're just going to break this down real simple this morning. What does Jesus mean by meek? What does Jesus mean by inherit the earth? And that's what we'll talk about this morning. So what does Jesus mean by blessed are the meek? That word meek can also be translated gentle, mild, or humble. We kind of wrestle with putting it in our language. It's been said that it was used of domesticated animals back in Jesus' day. Strength or power under control being the basic idea. A picture, you might say, of a horse that's been tamed and bridled and all of its strength kind of brought underneath the reins. Now remember, the meekest person, because Jesus said he was meek, the meekest person to ever walk the face of the earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a man that drove hypocrites out of the temple with a whip. So meek doesn't mean wussy. It doesn't. It doesn't mean weak. That's not what it means at all. It doesn't mean that you never get angry about anything. It does mean that you get angry for the right reasons. Meek people are not those without strength, but they are those who use what strength, what position, what leverage they have to bless and not hurt others. You know, they, they, they use power appropriately. It's strength, it's power under control in a lot of ways. Friday, we inaugurated the 45th president of the United States. No matter where you voted or what you think and all those sort of things, you can't help but be amazed by the, what, 240 years now that our country has done something that other countries just kind of marvel at, and that is the peaceful transfer of power that we're privileged to live in in this democracy. But it's amazing to watch the inauguration and all the inaugural balls and all the stuff that goes on. People are ooing and eyeing over what the president and the first lady wear. Every word that is said in a speech or not said, the very demeanor with which things are done, the speeches that are given, the way they dance, that's a whole other thing. Did y'all see the dance? That was, it was interesting. Anyway, um, it's interesting, you know, anyway. Um, I say all that, they, didn't, they needed some lessons would have been good. Not that I'm one to give them, but, but anyway. But no matter what you watch, I can, what you just, you're just amazed by it, right? And it's a lot of pomp and circumstance and it's a lot of tradition. And those things are important because it's the way kind of the country moves from one thing to another. And maybe you're moving in celebration, maybe you're moving in mourning, but whatever it is, we're moving, right? And so it, and it's, it's just the way we deal with that and the way we do that. And all of it is very, a lot of symbolism of power. When one president goes and gets in, you know, is surrounded by secret service agents and gets in a helicopter and goes off in another one, you know, hell to the chief. I mean, power, right? And everybody stands up and everybody claps, even if they don't want to. They clap, right? And everybody puts on a smile because this is the president and he's protected. All these men in suits are around him, protecting him, getting him to one place to another. And our country is enamored with power. I actually heard one commentator on one of the news stations 
talk about the, seeing the presidential caravan goes by. And he says, no matter your politics and whether you're Republican or Democrat or whatever you think about whoever's in power at the time, if you're ever in a situation where you see the presidential caravan go by, you can't help but stop and think, he said, that there, that, there goes the most powerful person in the world. We are captivated by a nation with power. We lust after it. We're amazed by it. We, people hunger and thirst for it. It is one of the key gods and idols in many ways of our nation. And there's a lot of people that long for and seek after power. And a lot of people who have various amounts of power. And obviously the president is one that has a lot of power. But there are very few people in our nation and in our world who are meek. There are very few people who use power appropriately. There are very few people that are as what Jesus would describe as those who are meek and will inherit the earth. So to understand meekness, we need to understand something. First of all, we need to understand that meekness is rooted in a proper relationship with God. It's rooted in a proper relationship with God, and then it manifests itself in how we relate to others. Because that's the way it works, by the way. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he said, the second is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Because, and in other places, it just says to love your neighbor as yourself. When you get over to like, I believe it's Galatians. And, the, and, and if you do that, he says, you'll fulfill the law. That's because you, if you genuinely love God, you can't help but love your neighbor who's made in his image. And it's a reflection, right? The, in a lot of ways, the way we treat people and, and the, how we value people and whether we love people or not, all those things are a reflection a lot of times on our relationship with God. Not because they're God, but because they are created in His image. And if you love God, the Bible's very clear, you'll love people. First John puts it this way, how can you love God who you do not see if you don't love your brother who you do see? It's, it's a fallacy. It's, it's, it's crazy. It just can't happen. So meekness starts with understanding that it's rooted in a proper relationship with God. Now turn to Psalm 37, or you can look at it on the screen. I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage to you this morning. It's important because this is the psalm Jesus is quoting from. See, some of these Beatitudes, can't, are Jesus just quoting stuff, rearranging stuff from the Old Testament. In Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11, is where Jesus is quoting from. So to understand what he means, we have to start with where he pulled it from because he didn't just pull it out of thin air. So look with me, Psalm 37. I'm going to read to you from verses 1 through 11, what the psalmist says. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you look carefully at his place. He will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance. Now notice, two people in that psalm are told they'll inherit the land. The meek and those who wait for the Lord. So there's a connection. 
And all through the passage, this is what you see. Trust the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. All these actions are a picture of quiet confidence in God. See, these meek people, life throws them curveballs. The wicked may mock and ridicule. Trials will come and go, hurling their way. But they have a quiet confidence, a trust in God. They know and trust that God is sovereign, is in control. That's why they can fret not over the evildoer. Their relationship with God begins to affect how they relate to others and the actions of others. So the meek are those who are surrendered and submitted to God and His will. They trust Him. They submit to Him. They're waiting on Him, patiently on Him, committed to Him and His way, delighting in Him. They're submitted and surrendered to God and His way. See, you can't get more weak and more an example of meekness than Jesus. Now I want you to think about Jesus. Before He goes to the cross, He goes to the garden to pray. Right? He goes off alone under a tree and He begins to pray in the garden. Lord, let this cup pass from me and then he says this nevertheless not my will but thine there is a submission there to the will of the father jesus spent his life he tells us doing the will of god you get to john 17 he says i've come to do your will god it's your will that i've done his whole life was surrendered to the will of the father in fact jesus predicted his death multiple times in the gospel because he knew that he had come to seek and save that which was lost he knew he'd come to die and that he'd die on a cross if that was the Father's ultimate plan. Yet he continued on, marching towards Jerusalem. One point it says he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, knowing that he was going there to die. And he continued to march on. And I say to you, does that sound like a weak man? No, of course not. That's not a weak man. That's a meek man. That's the Son of God with all authority in heaven and on earth, submitting to the plans of his Father and using his power to serve others. James 1.21 says it is with meekness that we're supposed to receive the word of God. It says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And it says, with meekness, with gentleness. Same root word here that we see in our text. Receive the implanted word of God. In other words, our attitude towards God's word is to be humble, submissive, surrendered, open to what God has to say, quick to respond to it, malleable in his hands. Meek people recognize and submit to the authority of God. Because they trust Him. They delight in Him. They're surrendered to Him. And you'll never be brought under control until you submit to the one who's ultimately in control. It begins with a right relationship with God. See, meekness crucifies our personal agenda. And in place of it arises a kingdom agenda. This is the person that seeks first the kingdom of God, as Jesus said. This is the person that, that prays Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, meekness and, and what it means runs throughout Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. Terry Johnson, who I've quoted the last few weeks, who wrote the book When Grace Transforms, writes this, The meek person is not meek because he lacks the resources to be anything else, but because he chooses to be. Because he is humble and dependent upon God, he chooses not to assert himself, not to domineer, not to advance personal aims, but is content with lowly service. See, it's a dependence in God that manifests itself in how we retreat and relate to others. So while meekness begins in a relationship with God, it is expressed primarily in how we properly relate to other people. A great picture of meekness in the Bible 
is in the life of Moses. And it'll be on the screen for you. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. This is a story between Moses and his brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron. Let me read to you the story. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. They didn't like that, right? So family feud happening here. Verse 2, and they said, Has not the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? In other words, Moses, you're not so special. I mean, I know you go to your big mountain and, and you have your moments with God and everything, but we know God too. And it says the Lord heard it. And then it inserts this in verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And then the Lord goes on to put Aaron and Miriam in their place. Moses didn't have to. So there's this conflict, right? And, and Moses meets adversity from others. And they're, and they're questioning his authority. They're, they're pushing back. And what Moses could have done is Moses could have said, I know I'm your brother, but I go on a mountain and I talk to God and he talks to me. Shutty pie, right? He could have said, he could, he should have, he, he could have said you, know, you know, when I come down from the mountain, I glow. Like, you ever glow like that? You ever glow like that? Right? Who are you to talk to me like that? I'm stinking Moses. Remember, remember Egypt? Yeah. Remember the bloody Nile and all that kind of stuff? God worked through me. Did you prefer Pharaoh? Just shut up. Yeah, Moses could have done that. Right? Some of us, maybe we would be tempted to do that in this situation. Who are you to question me? Who are you to even see yourself as an equal to me? Moses didn't say a word, and the Bible is telling us why. It's because he's meek. So is he just a wimpy, weak man? This guy led hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people out of slavery. He's one of the most well-known religious figures in all the world in any, any religion. He's on the Mount Rushmore of the Bible. Abraham, Moses, next is Jesus, right? David, Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is above them all, but you get my point. They are the known religious figures when we think about the Bible, when we think about the Old Testament. But there's a reason that the Bible says, no, Moses just, he just says, and the reason, there's a reason the Bible says the Lord heard it. And then the Lord addressed them. Because Moses was trusting the Lord. He was walking with the Lord. He was submitted and surrendered to the Lord. And he didn't have to be all defensive and all that kind of stuff. He knew God had his back. And he just let God handle this. I'm not saying he wasn't, dealing, wasn't going to deal with conflict or whatever, but the Bible wants us to see that he wasn't going to react hot-tempered, easily irritable, thin-skinned towards others. And this is a man who killed somebody. You know that story? The first time we're, one of the first times we're introduced to Moses in the Bible, he sees an Israelite being beat up and he goes and kills the Egyptian that's beating up the Israelite. Meekness is not a personality trait. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Moses didn't have a meek personality. There's no such thing. Meekness is rooted in God. <laughs> Meekness is about how you relate to God and others. It, it, it can't be a personality trait. And Moses here responds with patience and grace to these two people who are in the wrong here. And God lets God set them right. See, meek people are fully trusting in the Lord. And I love how the ESV Study Bible puts this. It notes this, that it sets them free from selfish ambition and promotion. It sets them free from selfish ambition and promotion. See, when you're trusting God, 
You're free to love and relate well to others and not use them, not walk over them. This is important to understand. Meek, meek people are free people. Meek people are free people. They have been set free to love and serve others well and not use them and not walk over them. When you're trusting and submitted to God and His will, you don't feel the need to elbow and push your way over people and step on people and use people. You're content with being second, free from selfishness, free from self-centered living. John Piper said it this way, Why do I care if your house is bigger than mine if I know that my Father owns the city and has deeded me in the will? That's why Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth. It's very freeing when you know that God's in control and you know that, as we're going to talk about here in a minute, all things are yours and God is sovereign over it. It frees you up to not feel like you've got to be defensive all the time and protecting your turf. When you're surrendered to and trusting in the Lord, you're free in your relationships with others and the competition is over. And there's no reason, as Psalm 37 said, to fret over the wicked. No reason to be easily angered and riled up every time your name gets called wrong because God's in control. Think about it. If you really believe God is in control and you trust and submit to Him, shouldn't that radically change how you relate to other people? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't that have an impact on how we live life, do life, and what bothers us and doesn't bother us? Of course it should. It should make us different. Explain three ways that it makes you different in your relationships with others. Meek people are freed to not be first all the time. They're free to not be first all the time. Remember, they're set free. Mark 10, 42 through 45. Jesus tells his disciples, James and John come to Jesus and they say, hey, we want to sit in the really good spots on your right and on your left in your kingdom. They're, they're, they're all excited about the kingdom. Oh, the kingdom's coming. The kingdom's here. We're about to put these Romans in their place and Jesus is about to set up his earthly reign and I want to sit on your right hand and I want to sit on your left hand. And Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They domineer over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, he tells James and John and all the disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. See, in our world... People make their way to the top by elbowing and pushing and stepping on and stepping over, sometimes mistreating people, and people look more like obstacles and objects than people made in God's image. But in Jesus' kingdom, he says, if you want to be great, you're going to serve. It's strength under control, yielded and harnessed for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, and for the good of others. See, Jesus frees people to serve. He provides the example of what service looks like. Did you catch it there? He's the example. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. See, without example, we gravitate to the path of least resistance. Right? If I tell, one of, if I tell Cannon to pick up his toys at home, he, he, in his mind it's toys. That means plural. I'll take two, right? Well, no, I mean all the other ones, to, you know, so I have to show him. No, I mean these, and I mean you need to go over here, and I need you to do this. And, right? If you, if you tell somebody to, Tell a kid to cut your yard, they don't think that means weed eat. They never think that means weed eat, right? If you tell somebody to wash your car, they assume that doesn't mean detailing anything. Maybe they don't mean the inside. He meant wash the car, not clean the car, right? And so we gravitate to the path of least resistance. It's human nature. So Jesus doesn't let us do that. He gives us the example. He says, I've laid down, I laid down my life. 
to give my life as a ransom for many. It's sacrificial. See, meek people aren't simply nice people. It doesn't mean that you're just kind and nice and, and not a jerk to the waiter or the waitress, which should be a given. It means you're others-oriented. It means you're okay not being first all the time. The meek are not domineering. They're not manipulative. It's not forcing my personal agenda all the time. They aren't constantly demanding their rights from others. They don't have to have all the credit. They don't have to always be the star and the center of attention. But when self still sits on the throne of our heart, self must be served. Self is a very demanding master. But when Jesus sits on the throne of the heart, you're free to serve others. Because that's what Jesus did. So you're free to not be first. Secondly, you're free to not be difficult. Meek people are more patient and gentle towards others. They are under control, so they are not difficult. The proud are defensive. They're easily angry. The meek are peaceful, and they're patient. You know, as a kid, one of the most irritating things was you'd get this awesome toy for Christmas or for your birthday, and you knew it was going to need batteries, and then you get the toy, and you're like, okay, it needs batteries. We've got, you know, your parents are like, we've got batteries, and you, and you open it up, and it needs a 9-volt. <laughs> Nobody has 9-volt batteries. TV remotes don't take 9-volt batteries. You can't just go pull a 9-volt battery out of anything except for a fire alarm, right? Now they don't even do that anymore. Like, everything's wired in and all that. And so you're like, ugh, you know? And so you got to go to the store and buy your $12 battery, right, to make the toy work. There was nothing worse than toys that took 9-volt batteries. You know, some people take 9-volts. You know some people like that, don't you? Yeah. Sometimes we all do. People sometimes can be very difficult. We can be challenging, thin-skinned, easily angered, holding grudges, unreasonable, ridiculously harsh, hard to get along with. That is not meek people. James 4 talks about showing our works in the meekness of wisdom. I'm going to read this to you from James 4, verses 13 and 14, and verse 17. See, wise people are meek people. Meek people are wise people. They go together, and their similarities are uncanny. Listen to what James says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So there's a meekness to wisdom. What does that look like? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast to be false to the truth. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You hear the meekness of wisdom there? It's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. It's not clamored with selfish ambition. See, difficult people are not approachable. They're not teachable. They're not open to reason. But when selfish ambition is crucified, approachableness, teachableness, open to reason, all the peacefulness, all these things can live. See, a humble people, meek people, know they have much to learn. Let me ask you, when's the last time you admitted you were wrong about something? When's the last time somebody confronted you and said, I don't think you, and you said, you know what, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. You say, I don't like saying that. Meek people don't mind saying that. It is arrogance that prevents us from saying that. Are you open to reason? In other words, are you open to the idea that you may be wrong? That you're not perfect? Is it up for discussion? Are you willing to adhere to a standard that's higher than you? 
It's the only way you can really be open to reason. Are you willing to go, you know what, I, I think I'm right, but you know what, maybe I'm wrong, but let's go to God's word together and find out. Open to reason. Can people confront you? Or the idea just terrified. Well, I would talk to them about that, but I can't talk to them about that. They'll fly off the handle. They get all defensive. They go run and hide. They won't speak to me for a year. That is not a meek person. See, the meek are at rest in God, and therefore they can be at rest with others. It prevents us from always just having this edge to us. It's always the victim. Somebody's out to get me. Thin-skinned, looking to justify themselves. Always on edge, defensive, testy. Because they're serving self. And self is a demanding master. See, difficult people are easily angered. They're unforgiving. They're unpeaceful. Let me ask you, what makes you angry this morning? What really gets under your skin? Is it your rights being violated? When people disrespect you? See, me, people, it has been said, get angry over the right things the right way. John MacArthur says it this way. He notes that the meat get angry over what makes God angry. Think about Jesus, I mentioned earlier, in the temple with a whip. He let people spit on him. He let people pull his beard out. He let people take crown of thorns and shove them in his head and, and put nails through his hands and feet. And the Bible says he didn't utter a word. He didn't say, you're going to get what's coming to you. I'm going to throw you headlong into hell one day. He didn't say anything like that. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But when God's house was dishonored and Gentiles were being kept from hearing about God because they had turned the place where Gentiles were supposed to hear about God into a flea market, Jesus came in with a whip and ran everybody out of town. It wasn't that Jesus never got angry. He got angry over the right things the right way. The strength brought under control. Let me ask you, are you an unforgiving person? If we think too much of ourselves, we will be. Sometimes people are unforgiving and just refuse to forgive because they're very defensive of their God. And in those situations, the God is usually us. Are you unforgiving? Hold grudges? Make people pay? Let me ask you, do you find unity with other believers to be difficult? So what does that have to do with anything? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 4, meekness is a recipe for church unity. Listen to this, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, that is the same Greek word as meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that whole chapter is about unity in the church. And the point is humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These are the ingredients that go into the pot that creates community with other believers, that creates church unity. But some people, they can't go six months without being in a fight with somebody at church. They're problem causers. Sometimes they hop from church to church. I don't like any church. I don't like the people in church. I don't like the people in the small group. I don't like the people that did this. I don't like the people that did that. And they're just always angry and easily irritable because everything's about them and they're, they're not gentle towards others. They're not patient with others. They're not bearing with one. They don't have the ingredients in their heart to make them flow easily and connect well with other believers. And sometimes that's because they're not a believer. They're a professing believer. And if it's not that, it's definitely because they're in sin. 
a lack of church unity around Christ and around his word, when that just can't happen, it's always because of sin. Because it's always God's goal. And the only thing that prevents us from doing God's goal is our sin. Are you a difficult person? Meek people are not difficult people. They're freed from that. And thirdly, they're freed to minister to others. To help others. To bless others. To encourage others. To replenish others. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 11, 28-29. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the word meek. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me. He invites the weary, the heavy laden, those who are just sick and tired of being sick and tired, those who are trying to, 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 to be good enough and to be righteous enough and to keep enough of the rules to earn their way into heaven, those who are weary from their own self-righteousness. And Jesus looks at them and he says, come to me and I'll give you rest because I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. In other words, you find rest when you come to me. See, if there was ever anyone who had a right to be harsh with other people, if there was ever anyone who had a right to put his finger in the face of someone else, it was Jesus Christ. We got the story in John 8. It's very well known, right? There's a lady that they catch in sin. And they have her lined up and they're ready to throw rocks at her and stone her to death for her adultery because that was what the law said at that time. And Jesus steps up and Jesus says, He who is without sin, cast the first stone. Now, first thing he did is he gets down and he begins riding in the dirt. And we don't know what Jesus is writing in the dirt. I heard old joke one time that said he was probably writing down some of the names of the people some of these men had committed immorality with. I don't know. You know. But he's writing something down in the dirt that freaks them out. And he says, now if you're without sin, you throw the first stone. And they all walk away and drop the rocks. And the one man who had the authority and the integrity to stoner said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, Jesus is the one person that could be harsh with people because he's God. And he chose to be gentle with people. He chose to be a refuge for people. See, Jesus invites broken and weary, those weighted down by sin and shame. He invites them to him as the ultimate meek one. He is a refuge. See, meek people are refreshing to others, not draining to others. They offer rest and peace. They offer to bear the burdens of others. They are gentle in dealing with those who hurt, with those who are struggling, with those who are failing. Because they're slow to anger, they're patient, they're a drink of water to thirsty souls in a world full of quick-tempered, selfish, me-centered people. Meekness enables us to be more of a help to the wayward believer and to the unbeliever. I'm telling you, meekness... Is, the, is part of the secret sauce that helps the church reach the world. That's why when Jesus gives the Beatitudes, he closes it out with, you are the salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill. Right? Because it's when we're functioning as we're supposed to function. It's when we, who we are as the Beatitudes reveals that we are the most attractive to the world. And meek people offer refuge. They attract people. That's why Jesus, he all, Jesus had sinners coming to him, inviting them to their house for dinner, the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the people that they considered just the worst of the worst. These were the people who were flocking to Jesus. And it wasn't because he told them he was meek and gentle. It's because they knew he was. He was a refuge to them. 
See, meek people are the people that can help believers get out of sin. Listen to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. Now, you're supposed to restore him. You're supposed to go to him. Help him turn his life around in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. There's only one attitude. There's only one approach. There's only one proper way for a believer to go to another believer and say, I want to help you get out of this sin. And it's with meekness, a spirit of gentleness, a a tenderness, an understanding, a humbleness before God that it could be us, that we have sin in our eyes, that we've got planks in our eyes before we can go removing specks out of others. There's a meek approach, a gentle approach. Humility and patience and servant-hearted nature, that characterizes the true restorer of the fallen brother or sister. And it's the meek who can help unbelievers come to Jesus. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He said, you need to be ready to give a reason when someone asks you why you have so much hope. You need to be ready to give your testimony. But you must give that testimony. You must talk about Jesus this way with gentleness and respect. Meekness and respect. Jerks don't reach people for Jesus is what he's saying. If your idea of witnessing to others is calling them stupid in the name of Jesus on social media, you need a new plan. Is he talking to me? That's you, I'm talking to you. Love you. People do that. I can go to Facebook, you go to Twitter, and you see people, and it's just kind of like, you know, you're an idiot in the name of Jesus, you know? It's gentleness and respect. You won't win anybody without those two ingredients. Those are the ingredients that God commands of us. Let me ask you, has God made you meek? Do you have a quiet confidence in God, a surrender to his will that frees you to treat others with humility, with respect, with deference? Are you characterized by anger and impatience and fretfulness and defensiveness and arrogance and harshness and bitterness and just being plain difficult? Or are you patient, righteously angry, peaceful, open to reason, humble, gentle, forgiving, a blessing to others? You know, when these things aren't there, if if it's just not there, it's very clear. These are characteristics of the kingdom. None of us are perfect in this. We're all messed up. We're all growing. But if we're not growing and maturing in meekness, there's a problem. And it's either because we're lost or at this particular point in time in your life, you're not submitted to and surrendered in and trusting in the Lord like you should be. Because it's our relationship with the Lord and our fellowship with Him that fuels how we relate to and connect with others. Christian, are you growing in meekness today? Jesus says it's the meek that will inherit the earth. What does he mean by that? Well, the Bible's clear. Revelation 21, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The first earth passed away. The sea was no more. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The dwelling place of God is with man, he says. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. Heaven's coming to earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus says, it will belong to the meek. The Bible even says we're going to reign with him. 
It says believers are going to judge angels. You say, is that some weird verse in Revelation? That's in Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, I believe. So what is he talking about? I'm talking, all, we all I know is this, in some way, Jesus is going to delegate some authority to his people. It is the meek who will inherit the earth, even if they don't run it today. But the Bible is very clear that we have what we need for contentment in the here and now. See, Paul tells the Corinthians to stop boasting in men. They, they, in, in 1 Corinthians, they had, a, they had a real problem with just getting along. And they were, they were, one would take Paul's side and one would take Apollo's side. And they were just picking, I mean, they are fighting over everything, even who their favorite preacher was. It was silly. And in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 through 23, Paul says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. In other words, he's saying, you have everything you need. For life and faithfulness and growth in Christ. God has given it all to you. There's nothing God's keeping from you. And if it's Peter or it's Paul or it's Apollos, it's all for your good. God's using it all for your good. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? There is a future coming to which we know the meek shall inherit the earth, but there is a present reality. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it's like we already possess it. Because there's nothing that God wants us to have that we want for. There's a present tense of God taking care of us, giving us what we need. Why do you think Jesus put this promise here? Isn't it because we understand that it's a promise, but it's also a motivation? It's freeing. When you know you're going to inherit the earth, when you know, as Corinthians says and as Romans says, that he gives us all things and all things are yours, shouldn't you be more willing to be last? To serve? To be looked down upon, talked about, to be deprived, to suffer? Shouldn't it make you a little less defensive and a little less angry? You don't have to always be scrounging around to make sure you get yours and defend your rights because it's all yours. Whole earth you're going to inherit. Why do we need to step on and push past and run over those seeking and seeking to protect our personal agenda if in the end you inherit the earth? See, it's a promise with a motivation that helps us grow in meekness. A meek shall inherit the earth. Meekness is a characteristic of God's people. However, like anything, we aren't perfect and we fail and we should be growing in meekness and humility and gentleness. You should be more servant-hearted 10 years from now than you are today and today than you were 10 years ago. But when we aren't meek or we aren't pursuing meekness, something is wrong. For some, it's lostness. Selfish ambition still sits at the center of the heart. Self is still on the throne. You have not died to your personal agenda. You're lost. That's one reason. And the other, as I said, is rebellion against God. Not growing in meekness, meekness because we're wandering from Christ. And Jesus offers the same thing to boast. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest because I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. Jesus is the refuge, whether it's the believer that needs to come back and needs to repent or whether it's the unbeliever that needs to be rescued from themselves. Jesus is always the one inviting us back. It is Christ who is gentle, invites the proud to humble themselves and come to him to find rest. Have you found refuge in Christ this morning? Meekness begins with Jesus. It is Christ who suffered for our sin and didn't defend himself. 
didn't rail against his persecutors, his murderers. He willingly suffered and died for you and for me, for our sin and our place. And he could have called, as it's been said, a legion of angels down from heaven. But he didn't. He laid down his life for us. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life a ransom for many. And before he can be your example of meekness, he has to be your Savior. Have you trusted him? Let's pray.